should wait to come out, that you should uh, try to gain rank or status before you do that. That's a bunch of bull It's a new day in the music industry, and I can reach my fans. We're getting there. I've caused harm to the political agenda, and which I'm actually happy for. I would say probably the best message to them is that they're on the wrong side of history. Whether you're lesbian, gay, bi, transgender, or whatever, Love is love. Shout it out to the world. The Michelle Miao Show. Your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now here's your host, Michelle Miao. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us here on the Michelle Miao Show. The Michelle Miao Show is your A through Z, covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. Happy Friday. Friday means we air content from the Commonwealth Club. My co-host, John Zipper, who I do the program with on Thursdays, uh, he airs his program, which is called Week to Week Political Roundtable Talk, and every now and then we also air talks that happen at the Commonwealth Club. Today, we're going to air a conversation with Donna Brazil, and it happened right around the time she launched her book. And so let's just get to it. It's juicy. Today's program is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. Enjoy the program. Hello, I'm John Zipperer, the host of the Commonwealth Club's week-to-week political roundtable. You can find out more about Week to Week, including how to attend a program when you're in the Bay Area, and about all of our 450 programs a year by going to commonwealthclub.org. Now, let's join today's program. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the Commonwealth Club of California. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org, on Facebook, on Twitter, and on our YouTube channel. My name is Audrey Cooper. I'm the editor-in-chief of the San Francisco Chronicle, and I'll be your moderator for this evening. And I'm so pleased to be sitting here next to veteran Democratic strategist Donna Brazil, who has been working on behalf of Democratic candidates for more than 40 years. Last year, as you all know, she took over as interim chair of the Democratic National Committee in the wake of the Russian email hacking scandal. And now Donna is speaking out about her time in the DNC in her new book, Hacks, the Inside Story of the Break-Ins and Breakdowns that Put Donald Trump in the White House. Now you've probably already heard some of the tidbits about the book, including about, oh you have, (laughs) tidbits. Some of them are chapters long. About things such as how she considered replacing Hillary Clinton as the candidate Um, after she fainted at the 9-11 memorial, and also revelations about how the Clinton campaign was essentially using the DNC as a puppet organization even before the convention. Donna, thank you for joining us tonight, and congratulations on your book. Thank you. Uh, As I I told you backstage, I really find it. It's the most fascinating book I've read so far about this election. And of course, it's also been widely criticized by your former colleagues on the left, even while it's been celebrated by some people who are Bernie Sanders supporters, were Bernie Sanders supporters, and still upset about how that happened. It's even earned you a few uh, words, tweets of praise from the president. (laughs) 
strange bedfellows. And, and you know, I, I tweeted back and I said, Mr. President, go back to attacking me, please. <laughs> it's more comfortable. Yeah, it's, it's much better to, to be attacked than loved. Well, I, I read, I read, uh, I read a political consultant today. However, called it the equivalent of a political suicide note. So I'm, I'm wondering, you've spent most of your life working on behalf of the party and democratic causes. You had to have known this book would be as controversial as it was. For somebody who's been trying to unify a party for so long, what was the win you saw in opening some of these healing wounds? Well, the, the reaction itself should tell you why this book is important to read. And for those of you who perhaps haven't had a chance to read it, but only have gleaned some of the excerpts or some of the 140 or 280 characters from Twitter, uh, let me just tell you, um, I took time to think about what, what this would mean for not just my party, but also my country. By the way, I'm not, I'm not upset anymore. <laughs> Last week when I received notice that, you know, Politico would, would publish an excerpt, I went over to Robbie Mook's office at Harvard. I'm at Harvard also. So I'll tell you one little quick story. Every time the winner of the Electoral College loses the popular vote, I go to Harvard. My second trip at Harvard after the Gore campaign, now Clinton. So I went over to say hello to Robbie and say, Robbie, my book is coming out. I said, you know what I, you know, I wrote about throughout the entire time. And Danielle is here as my witness. We reached out to my colleagues. They knew I was writing a book. They knew exactly what I wanted to write about. And Robbie did this, dismissed me. That was the same attitude that I had throughout the time when I served as chair. And so I went to Robbie, Karen Finney, who was the deputy communications director. I emailed other people in the Clinton campaign. So I did my due diligence. And by the way, I didn't have to. I wasn't paid to be the chair of the Democratic National Committee. I served as chair twice in my life. I did it because I love Hillary. I did it because I love my country. I did it because the DNC was hacked. And when you think of hacking, I, mean, I know many of you probably think, oh, this is just somebody walking into your house and, you know, taking a few items and just leaving everything else. No, this is a burglary. This is a crime. Somebody walked into the house and not only took the precious jewels, all of the electronics, but they also got a chance to turn on the gas, to remove items, and to discard most of the other material. I became chair because the DNC was a victim of a crime. It was a cyber espionage crime. And while many of you probably read all of the emails, how many of you seen my emails? Well, thank you. <laughs> what you didn't know was that they corrupted our data. What you didn't know is that they got into our voter files. So for a campaign to rely on data and analytics at, the time, at a time when the Russians were essentially using active measures to disrupt our campaign and to discredit our nominee, let me just tell you, 
I wanted to write this story because I believe it's a warning to all Americans that we have to protect our democracy. We have to ensure that we never ever experience an election where there is a foreign government, a hostile foreign government, sowing weapons of what I call weapons of mass disinformation into our electorate. I experienced it, my colleagues did. There was not one night that we could sit in the DNC headquarters without fearing for our lives and our safety. And most of the time, I did not tell the staff. Most of the time, I just reported it to those who needed to know because I was under disclosure from the quote unquote FBI. That's the one last thing I have to tell you. People say, well, why did Donna write it now? My disclosure did not end until October 17th. And a week later, Robert Mueller is handing down indictments now. Hey. <laughs> I'm going to say one last thing, Audrey, and then you get, you, you, you get as tough as Andrea Mitchell and all the other sisters and brothers I've dealt with this week. <laughs> I, have, I have always stirred the pots. Ladies and gentlemen, we would not have a diverse and inclusive Democratic Party had it not been for people like me who did not disturb the pots. And so the fact that there, it's in 265 words, look, I could have went on and on and on and on and on. Danielle told me to cut it short. I had some chapters that we left on the floor. So I wish I could write hats 2.0. I got some more to say. But people should read the book for no other reason. If you're a democratic activist, you should read it because you want to know how to, how to win again. If you're an American, you should read it because you need to understand how we're, we need to protect our democracy in the future. The Russians are coming back. If not the Russians, who knows? I've been hacked by the Chinese and the Russians. All I know is that if the North Koreans come, they're not coming after our election system, our vote machines, or our little data, or Donnie's emails. They're coming after our power grids. They're coming after our airport towers. They're coming after our defense systems. So this book is a warning about what we should be doing to prepare for in the future. And the occupant in the White House, now my Democratic friends are mad with me. So what? No gumbo for them. <laughs> and I'm, I'm still loving them. I'm trying to get Michelle to come out. When they go low, we go high. But the occupant in the White House, he has yet to take prudent steps to protect us, to protect you, to protect your election systems, to protect your voter registration systems, to protect your grids from a future cyber attack. So that's why I wrote this book. In the, on the hot sauce. In, <laughs> in, the, in the book, you describe coming into a DNC that is pretty severely mismanaged, especially financially, and, um, and a campaign that's really under the thumb in almost every way of the Hillary Clinton campaign because of a fundraising agreement they signed. So it's been said that that is evidence that the election was rigged, that the primary was rigged against Bernie Sanders. Can you explain... First of all, why this is important to your average voter, and more importantly, should voters who actually go to the ballot box and click on their favorite candidate, how did it affect them? Well, that's a great question. 
So I, I write in a book that I wanted to, uh, when, I, when I became chair, I promised Bernie, as well as Hillary, that I would find out what, if anything, occurred. Remember, there was a, a big dump of emails, Guccifer 2.0. They had our emails. They, had, they, were, they were in our system from July of 2015 until we, quote unquote, until it reached the top. Now let's talk about that. I'm gonna talk about mismanagement. I'm gonna make it really quick. Mismanagement is when someone is in your house robbing you and no one has, quote unquote, informed the, the homeowner. And the homeowner is in the house and they're robbing you. But they're telling the geek squad, the FBI, it's calling the Geek Squad. You know, you ever go to Best Buy and you see the Geek Squad? Well, the Geek Squad know that somebody is in your house, but they don't tell the management. So by the time the management was informed that the, the Russians, Cozy Bear and then Fancy Bear, these are APT-29, APT y'all can get in there and look at all of this stuff, okay? I don't want no bears in my house. By the time it reached the management, Audrey, it was too late. They had been in our system for almost a year, and they had stolen most of our data. And what they did was they began to leak selective emails, not all emails, over 150 staffers. So the first mismanagement, in my judgment, as an officer, I was not informed. I was not informed until May that something was happening. You know how I learned? I was at a Beyonce concert. <laughs> you know, I'm a single lady. And she was just as grooving as she wanted to be. And I'm trying to take a picture. And I'm like, what's wrong with my phone? Picture? And I mean, it, it was like, I know she has some moves. But my phone was doing some moves. And I noticed two of my colleagues that I mentioned in the book, Julie Green and Patrice Taylor, they were also there. I found out from them that their computers had been taken, but I also had a DNC account. So the, the chair of the party was not informed until August, I mean, until April 29th. And on June 14th, when they went public, they informed the officers, oh, by the way, we've been hacked. Well, hell. <laughs> June 14th, because she wanted to tell us before she told the Washington Post. Because they were about ready to do a story on it. Yeah. And that's how we learn. That's how you learn. That's how Americans learn. And so part of what I'm, part of what I confronted as the quote unquote chair of the party, because as vice chair, I'm not, I don't have fiduciary responsibility of the day-to-day -day operation. I don't run the day-to-day -day staff, although I had two staff members. And I'll get to that in a bit, but please let's get to that last because that'll make me cry. But part of my responsibility when I walked into that building was to find out what happened and to go back and report. Was it rigged? No, I found no evidence that the quote unquote primary was rigged, but what I found evidence of, which made me very upset, I found evidence that the, in addition to the standard joint fundraising agreement, there was also an addendum, a memorandum of understanding, that in exchange for relieving the DNC of its debt or helping the DNC pay off its debts, 
the Clinton campaign would run certain parts of the DNC. And my reaction to that was like, oh, hell no. You don't do that. You don't run any aspect of the DNC until you become the nominee. Now, I, I give Secretary Clinton and her campaign a lot of praise because the DNC was at a point in, in September 2015 where it could not meet payroll. But I was worried that this would give, give the impression that the DNC was in the tank for one candidate. And that, in my judgment, was immoral. And that was wrong. And that's why I confronted it. And I learned something about confronting it. And we'll get to some other issues about this. I learned something else when I had to confront it. I learned that the chair of the party did not have day-to-day -day control over what was being spent. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to tell you something. If I raise $2, I want to at least spend $1.90 of it. I'll put 10 cents aside. But when Donald Trump on August 19 said, what the hell do you have to lose? And here I am. He was in a black church in the black community. What the hell do you have to lose? And I'm like, oh, hell no. We got a lot to lose. We got Obamacare. We got climate change. We got gay rights. We have civil rights. We have vote. I mean, I'm just going on my head, going over crazy. It's already getting a little purple. <laughs> and what the hell we have to lose? And then I'm like, well, I'll give it back to him. I was ready to get some radio ads. You know, I was going to use one of my, you know, Obama or somebody to respond. And I was told, Madam Chair, no. I'm like, wait a minute. It's my, Madam Chair, no. We're not running ads right now. And that's when I realized that this agreement, this disagreement forced me as chair to be on the sidelines. I could not do my job as chair. And yet, when I told Bernie it was cancer, I said, it's cancer because I cannot do my job as chair. But I'm not going to destroy the patient. I was not going to be accused of hurting the campaign, hurting Hillary Clinton, who I supported and loved. And I was not going to be accused of hurting the DNC and all of the other down-ballot races. So I put my head down, and people in this room know we started raising our own money because they forced us to raise our own money. And forcing a black woman who's been in the Democratic Party since the age of nine to raise her own money to respond to DT, that really unnerved me. The, the problems you described when you started as interim chair are, are certainly Russia, the hack, is a major part of it. The financial problems are a major part of it. And you portray the party as being this place where largesse was entertained because there were personal benefits for it, which to me raised the question of, after reading your book, do you think that donors should be concerned to donate to the party in the future? Well, no, because we've cleaned it up. But some of the feathers that are being ruffled this week, y'all know I'm having fun at some of the people who are, some of the things they're saying about me. I've never been a corporate lobbyist. I've never... I've, I've never received $25,000, dollars dollars $50,000 uh, from the DNC, you know, as a quote-unquote consultant. I mean, the last time I got paid, I was thinking the other day, I said, when the last time I got paid? And I just got reimbursed from the DNC recently after 30-something years. It was a good check, by the way. Uh, I had some bills. Did you cash it? Hell okay, yeah. Okay, good. I'm just making sure. <laughs> 
Mama gotta eat. Um, Before the book came out. Oh, okay, good. <laughs> but there were contracts. I had to go down. We were paying. I was asking people to come on board for free, or to come on board uh, for reduced salaries. And there were people making 25 grand a month. These are Democrats. I'm a Democrat. I am becoming chair of the party, and I'm not making a penny. And like I said, I have people in this room who can attest to the fact that my travel, I had already figured out how to, how to get around the country without charging a DNC a dime. Uh, Y'all know, I know, I know how to get around the country. <laughs> and so I was upset that they still, they insisted on making 25 grand a month or 15 grand a month. Yes, I know some of my, my quote unquote friends from the Obama land said, so why'd you say that about Obama? Well, the president was also getting, you know, he was doing polling and focus groups. I said, but your pollster is Hillary pollster, so you're paying him double. So I, I, just, I, just, I just tried to expose everything. I, I used to get on the phone with the lawyers. I should have got on the phone with them more. I'm like, why are we giving you 40 grand a month? What are you doing? I mean, I just, I, you grassroots America, you're sending me $5, $10. I am responsible for you. I want to tell you how I'm spending your money. I went to every meeting telling people how I'm spending your money, but I could not control your money. The chair of the party could not control your money. I felt the responsibility to tell you that. So we have a president now who seems to lack a consistent political ideology. And the parties are, of course, built on some semblance of consistent political ideology. And I'm wondering how you think about, especially given the rifts between the the Bernie wing and the Hillary Clinton wing of the Democratic Party, what what makes parties relevant nowadays? You can you can donate to any PAC. You can be super nuanced in the issues that you're interested in. Why 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 is this why is the DNC even relevant moving forward? Well, because we saw on Tuesday night. I mean, we saw we saw how relevant, you know, a energetic grassroots. That was, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, that was a bottom-up, that was a bottom-up uh, kind of grassroots momentum. It was not top-down. And, and for too long in our system of politics, we've we've had these two big political parties, and they're becoming less and less relevant. I totally agree with you, but I also believe for our democracy to be vibrant and strong, we need to strengthen our political parties. They have become ATMs now for special interests. And I am bothered by that. And the other thing I, I mentioned in the book is that I'm bothered by the fact that we raised close to a billion dollars and we only spread it among you know, a handful of states. So in states like my, my beloved home state of Louisiana, my state, we don't get money. We don't get money for organizing. We don't get money for voter registration campaigns. We don't get money you know, to hire you know, strategists. We don't get resources. And this past year, we saw four congressional races in Georgia, South Carolina, uh, help me out, Kansas, and Montana. And Democrats did very well. But when is the last time the Democratic Party put money in those states? I can tell you when, when Howard Dean was chair. Because Howard Dean had a 50-state strategy. And one of the reasons why I wanted to hire Tom McMahon 
was ensure that the Democratic Party can go back to a 50-state strategy. We have to become relevant. We have to run candidates at, at every level. And I'll tell you one other reason why we need political parties. The other day in Virginia, the reason why the Democrats did so well is for the first time in almost a decade, we ran candidates. We have ceded too much ground. I'm a Democrat, ladies and gentlemen. So if, I, if a Republican is a room, uh, independent, here I go. We have ceded too much ground to the Republicans in the South. And we don't run candidates. We don't fund those candidates. And so those candidates won last week, I mean this week, because we funded them, because we gave money to down-ballot races, which help people at the top. So we have to strengthen our political parties. Otherwise, they are going to disappear. This book is really a, a discussion of the establishment of the DNC. And I think one of the criticisms that we're hearing a lot of now about the, the party and Democrats in general is that they're very bad about giving up the reins to the next generation. You, you've already pointed out a few of your kids, as you call them, in the room. And you talk a lot about the millennials and what's good about them and what's bad about them in a campaign. Here in California, we're looking at our local congresswoman, Nancy Pelosi, a lot of questions about whether she can, should continue to serve as leader. Dianne Feinstein might have a race, a real race for the first time in a long time. Are we, is, how important is it that we, that the Democrats start to give up some ground to the next generation, even if it's a super liberal, super liberal, very, you know, Bernie Sanders type part of the party? It, it's, it, is, it is the most important, I think, is the most important challenge facing the Democratic Party. Our bench, I love our bench, by the way, but our bench, we need to make room for others in the party. Um, the bench is, is shrinking. If we don't begin to expand the number of, of, of people who are able to sit at the table, and here's what I tell people. I don't, I don't want the Dianne Feinsteins and the Nancy Pelosi's of the world uh, to leave the room. I want them to just scoot over. <laughs> scoot over, make room. You know, on the Republican side, I'm telling you, they, they, they start training people after their first campaign. And Donnie and Annie and everybody in this room who's ever worked on the Democratic Party, after every election, every two years, we discard our young people. We discard them. And then two years later, we say, oh, come on back in. Carl Rove used to keep those kids on his side of the aisle. He kept them working. He kept them involved, whether through tank, uh, think tanks or he put them in down-ballot races. On the Democratic side, we say goodbye. We don't say go back to Texas or go back to Louisiana, come back here. We say goodbye. And then two years later, we wait for some super person to, to, to present him or herself and say, oh, now we need fresh blood. Well, that blood needs to be, you know, st stay in the room. So we, I'm telling everybody, scoot over. I'm scooting over. I've scooted so far over. <laughs> I might just get kicked now. <laughs> so, so another thing that you, that you do to some, some amusement in the book is you name drop some of your favorite Republicans or some... some well, maybe favorite's the wrong word. Some Republicans that you have relationships with. Including I got a lot of relationships. Sean Spicer and Rince, Rince Priebus. Um, and, 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 and we were talking before backstage, we were, we were 
tweeted in something. Yeah. And I have to say, I thought I had trolls, but girl, you have trolls. I got bots and too. Bots, trolls, and they're, you know, we're at this point where civil, civic discourse seems very difficult to come by. And even yesterday, you took a picture with Milwaukee Sheriff David Clark, who is a darling of the far right, wants some things like even suspending the writ of habeas corpus. I know. He has some things that I, I think you would probably disagree with most of what he thinks. And you were pretty well filleted by the left for even posing for a picture. They acted as if the man and I were sleeping together, (laughs) that we were going and share a hot dog. For the record, you're not. (laughs) No. No. But here's the thing. And you know, I'm a grown woman. And so what if I did? And, but the point I'm, so I took, yesterday in the hotel lobby, I think it was yesterday, I'm losing track of days. In the hotel lobby, Sheriff Clark was there and Nikki Giovanni. Now, I posted my picture with Nikki Giovanni. She got a, she has a new book called Don't Make Me Cry. And I said, please don't make me cry because look at Sheriff Clark about to come here. We got to whip his, and and sure enough, so you got me and Nikki Giovanni there like, Oh, we gonna let's let's take him down. Let's you know you know two black women gonna take his you know, and all and he after we didn't finish he took a picture with me he posted it, and so all I could say, I said okay. I'm probably the first. No, let me stop. <laughs> no, I, okay. I think we don't it's want you to stop. It's all good. It's all good. But let me just tell you this. I have relationships. I love relationships. I love to have relationships on the left as well as the right. And I tell you why, I've been involved in politics since the age of nine. I wanna know who's working on the other side of the fence. But you can surely understand why people, we have, we have white supremacists coming out of the closet now. You don't I care. grew it's up okay. with a bunch of white supremacists. <laughs> I grew up in Louisiana. I grew up where there was something called the neutral ground. You couldn't go over on the other side because white folks would kill you. And let me tell you something about white people. Can I tell y'all about yourself? I stood up for y'all this year. I said, these white people who are coming after me, these are not American white people. They stop at the N-word. But these were calling me, I got N, the monkey, and then I got called the B-word and the C-word. I'm like, now that's, white people don't put them kind of combinations together. You know, it's like when you make your red beans and you put your sausage in it, but before you do that, you have your trinity. White people just go straight to the sausage. They're not going to be going through all that. Well, you know, is she a monkey first? No, no, no. These are not. I knew it was trolls. But it's okay, y'all, because my mama also taught me it's not what they call you, it's what you answer to. And so I ignore it. I'm speaking my truth. I'm speaking my truth. How many of you in this room on one day when you knew the Russians were coming after you quit everything? and went over to a building that was riddled with quote-unquote Russian hackers. How many of you had to go to bed every night wondering if somebody was going to come to get you and listening to your phone ring? I mean, I used to unplug my phone, and yet today I'm sitting here. I am still here. My friends are still here, and I'm going to tell my story because this is a story of when I look at this book, and I thought about it last night, the story of love too, love of my country. 
love of a candidate. I wanted to see a woman in the White House. I worked hard to see Hillary in the White House. But I also wanted to make sure that Bernie had every chance to compete and that the supporters, his supporters, had every opportunity to come into the room and to help revitalize the Democratic Party. So that's my book. But give, given all of these trolls and bots, yeah. uh, how, what do you, how do you think about the role of social media now in politics? We've seen, a, we have a president who, whether you like it or not, is a master of it. What, and, but yet you've also been the victim of the horrible side of it. What, what role do you see for social media in organizing? Well, here again, another reason why I wrote a book. In the middle of our struggle, and, and Annie and Donnie knows this very well, we were told not to talk about it. We were told not to share our story. We were being attacked. Our data, were, our data was being compromised. We didn't know what the Russians had up, uh, up in their quote unquote, wherever they threw all of the data. And what worried us is that they could be compromising election day activities. And we knew at the time that social media was playing this weird game. And those of you who follow Black Lives Matter, Black Twitter, now I come from the old school, so you know, I, I know black folks. But one day my niece called me and she said, Auntie Donna, we're, sh we're shutting down I-12. I said, you shutting down what? We never shut down I-12. I mean, the civil rights movement was not about shutting down I-12. And she lives in Baton Rouge, and you all know what happened in Baton Rouge with the unarmed black man who was murdered by a policeman. And so I said, don't you dare bring your to I-12 and shut down anything. And, and I, say, I kept saying, what is he talking about? And then I went on Twitter, and I started looking at these black activists, and I said, where the hell are these people come from? I've never seen them before. And they just, they were antagonizing these young people to go out there and do things that I know if John Lewis or Maxine Waters or Eleanor Holmes aren't, the tactics that they used in the 60s and in the 70s, Willie Brown, these activists were doing things that I said, oh my God, they're, they're doing some confrontational things that we were not taught to do, we were not trained to do. And that's what made me recognize that something was going on on Twitter. And then of course, as you know, with all of the discord, you know, with all of the, you know, here's my best day. On, on October 7th, 2016, I thought Donald Trump was gonna lose the election. Around 3.30, it's all in the book, hacks, we got a DNI report that the Russians, they confirmed that the Russians did indeed hack the DNC. Thank you, Jesus, that's how I felt. And then around 4.30, we had to access Hollywood tape. You know the... Oh, I remember it, yes. <laughs> I used some colorful words about that, too. It's all in the book. <laughs> and then around 5.30, here comes John Podesta. Now that, within a three-hour span, you have the notification that the intelligence agencies had concluded the Russians were involved in hacking us. You had to access Hollywood tape and then Podesta dump. What do you think, picked, what do you think got picked up on social media? Podesta. Two million, for, two million hits in social media for the DNI assessment. About five million hit, hits on the grabbing tape. That's what they called it. 
Kai, I should not have said that in front of my, <laughs> my godson. And on John Podesta's emails, 33 million. It's just like when the Comey letter came out, 28 million. So they, this was being pushed aggressively. I mean, and I can tell you, just based on the fact that when, when WikiLeaks started pouring all of their disinformation out, I said, oh my God, here it comes. Because what WikiLeaks did, ladies and gentlemen, along with Guccifer 2.0 and DC Leaks, they didn't just, so my emails, I, I had seven, eight, nine accounts. They didn't just pour out my accounts from one email address. They poured out my information from my DNC address. My Donna at Brazil Associates, since everybody knows that now, I'll tell you I've been had. That came out of Podesta. And yet when it was hacked, we could not get into the weeds because we were told we could not go and check and see what was on those leaked emails. You were told that if you disclosed what you discussed with the FBI, it would be considered treason. So I, I don't know how much of this you can still talk about now, but I guess my question would be what you learned during that discussion. Has all of that become public knowledge now or is there still more to it? I wanted to go to the Pentagon. We were being attacked. And we sat in a room like this. We, don't, we closed our door. Annie kept trying to come and bring us lunch. We didn't want to eat, we were, we were scared. It scared us out of our mind. The country was under attack. By the way, ladies and gentlemen, we just learned that the Joint Chiefs of Staff the Pentagon, I mean, the same APT-28, the APT-29, this has just come out in the last 24 hours. We've been watching this unfold over the last couple of weeks, and ladies and gentlemen, get ready. More is coming. So a poll came out a few days ago <laughs> that says 75% of Trump's voters believe the story about how Russia hacked the emails and hacked in to corrupt the election is fake news, 75% of Trump voters. But yet these are the same people who seem to have no problem buying a really unbelievable story about the Clintons running a sex shop out of a pizza parlor. <laughs> how, I mean, th and this is, not, this is not just a few people, this is oh. millions of people. How do you reconcile this complete um, divorce from reality when it comes to news and what they're been what they're being you told. know I, I I thought it was extremely you know Donald Trump last year you know you got to give Donald Trump credit I mean he he stole the show uh, I used to get up in the morning when I worked for CNN and ABC especially CNN I still I'm still with ABC for a few more weeks but I used to get up in the morning, they said, you know, Donald Trump just tweeted. I'm like, I had to get up, shower, get hair and makeup done, and he's still at home in his pajamas tweeting. <laughs> I mean, he controlled, I mean, he, Donald Trump received well over $4 billion in free coverage. He was, he dominated the Republican primary, and it was all positive coverage. And in the general election, he dominated the coverage, but it was more mixed coverage. So. I'm not surprised that millions of our fellow citizens who get their news, there's a whole right, right wing ecosystem that they, they only listen to each other. 
And I have my colleagues up at Harvard and the Shorenstein Center, they are now you know, investigating whether or not we have a similar ecosystem on the left, and I always say, no. <laughs> oh, we, we do, we like HuffPost, we like CNN, but we don't have an ecosystem. I mean, we go outside, some of us are still reading newspapers, some of us, we go outside, we go outside of our ecosystem. But on the right, 95% of them get their information from only their sites that, you know, start with Fox News, Breitbart. Breitbart has really come up from nowhere. Drudge, uh, Infowars, I mean, it is the ecosystem. I mean, you go and you look at their ecosystem and you, you cannot find NPR. You find e NPR on the left, but you don't find it on the right. So they, we got a country that's deeply divided, and I think because of the polarization, the Russians were able to achieve their goals, which was divide us, uh, to disrupt our election, and to discredit Hillary Clinton. They went after Hillary Clinton. That was the target. Hillary Clinton and our democracy, that was the target. The active measures were aimed at destroying Hillary Clinton. So I have to ask about the debate questions. Oh, yeah. So Do you have any? Uh, <laughs> Please share. I gave them to you before. I thought you, but yeah. you, know, you didn't give me any of the questions <laughs> in advance. So I did write up my questions, but she wouldn't take them. <laughs> I did. So uh, when, when the emails came out and the stories started about how you had given debate questions or likely debate questions um, while you were still a CNN commentator to the mm -hmm. Hillary campaign, your first response was, I don't know, and it was to deny it. And then you came out with the Time piece, a piece in Time magazine, that apologized for it, or, or that was portrayed as you were apologizing mm -hmm. for it. Mm -hmm. And now you put a more nuanced look at what was exactly going on in your book. I, I, I wonder, do you understand why people might question your credibility? Absolutely, and let me tell you, it was not easy for, for me to... Uh, figure out what was going on. It was John Podesta's emails. And we were told not to look at the email. So when I received my call, I said, what email? And they said to Podesta, I, didn't, I barely sent John Podesta. John and I are not cut buddies. So I may have sent John two or three emails, but he was not my cut buddy. And I, there are a couple of people on the Clinton campaign. God knows if you got my emails with them, Oh, you're just threatening the Russians now, <laughs> like tempting them. No, if they had them, they would have put them out, and God knows. But there was let me just tell you what I did. The first thing I did was to say outright and out front, which is true to this day, will be true to tomorrow and true every day of my life. CNN did not give me any questions, period. Anyone who has worked for CNN uh, would tell you that the Anderson Coopers and the Wolf Blitzes and the quote-unquote the anchors, they stay at the Rich Carlton. The Donna Brazils, the um, Anna Navarros and the uh, Van Jones, we stay at the Treasure Island. <laughs> so they are walled off over there. They are not walled off. We don't share questions. We share topics, but we don't share questions. So my initial response was the correct answer. No, I do not have any CNN questions. My second response, because I had to go home that evening, it's in the book. I had to go home, and then, by the way, it's like 14 pages, if you notice. 
I had to go home to see if I could find those emails that were so-called Donna Brazil sent to Podesta. I couldn't find them. I went on my, I went on my iPad, I went on my laptop, I went on my, my desktop, I couldn't find them. But then when I began to look for what I call more credible information once I received it, because I was on the road, then I realized what was going on. And why, and I thought it was important for me to at least explain it to the, the American people, especially to my party. I realized what was going on was three things. One, at a time when the Democratic Party wanted to expand the number of debates, I took active measures to help expand the number of debates. But I had two caveats. One, I, I made sure that CNN would be involved in expanding those debates. And secondly, I made sure that we would have diverse topics as well as uh, moderators who came from other networks, so TV One and Roland Martin. So Roland Martin and I devised those topics, and I did not want our candidates to be surprised at what we were going to discuss. Now, I work for CNN, I'm a, well, I used to work for CNN. I was a pundit with a point of view. A pundit with a point of view. I'm not a journalist, ladies and gentlemen, I'm a pundit. I'm also vice chair of the Democratic Party. So in many ways, I'm wearing two hats. So I, I played a role in expanding the debate and making sure that our candidates had an opportunity to address some very difficult but important issues that had not come up before in any of our debates. And of course, I wanted to talk about the death penalty. I wanted to talk about uh, criminal justice reform, mass incarceration. And I wanted to give Hillary and Bernie heads up uh, because we were going to Flint that we would talk about the water crisis. So that's what I did. Would you do it again? What? Which part of it? Give, give the topics or the general debate questions to the campaign. To both campaigns? Did to you all give campaigns? them equally to both campaigns? Oh, hell, the hell, the hell, yes. But only WikiLeaks only, WikiLeaks only showed you what I gave to Hillary. And let me tell you something. Jeff Weaver, uh, Simone Sanders, Mark Longabaugh, and Ted Devine all went on TV saying Donna was fair to us. But you asked me an in interesting question. If I had to do it all over again, uh, what part would I do differently? Well, first of all, if I, if I had to do it all over again, I would just be the chair the first time and not have to become the interim chair. That's number one. Um, I would listen to all of the candidates when they said they wanted more than six debates. The third thing I would do was I would make sure that our debates um, our debates would not be held on weekends, but we would hold them during the week when people, regular people could watch them and everybody could participate. And lastly, ladies and gentlemen, I love CNN, I love ABC, I love M NBC, but the fact is we often have white males who moderate our de debates, not people of color and not, not, you know, LGBT community. And I am sick and tired of us just having debates where we have one flavor and not all of the great diversity of our country. So if I had to do it again, I would do it a little bit differently, and I would hope that that would not put people like me in a position, you know, a year later discussing how I had to expand debates and make sure that our candidates were not surprised by the questions that we would be talking about the topics. Is the ineffective way in which the Hillary campaign went and attracted voters of color, in your opinion, a reason why she is not president right now? Oh, Lord. First of all, let's give, let's give Donald Trump some credit. I know y'all are gonna boo me. Um, he cracked the blue wall. I mean, he saw every day what we saw. 
he saw he saw Hillary uh, Hillary's campaign flying over Michigan and Wisconsin. Hillary lost with Michigan and Wisconsin the primary. She should have sent the army of people. She should have asked Bill to just go hang out in Detroit. We we knew we knew that the Obama coalition was not going to come out in the numbers that they came out in 08 and 012 without without adequate support. And also, you can't just use computer modeling to decide whether or not Audrey is going to vote or Donna is going to vote or Donnie or whoever. You need to go and talk to people. You need to be on the street. And the resources that was dissem disseminated in those states, it was, it was not adequate. Do you know what I still go to bed at night? If you want to know what my real guilty sin, Catholic self is, Donnie wanted $150,000 more for Michigan. Remember Donnie? Ed Rendell wanted $300,000 for Pennsylvania. I mean, because of the, of the lack of resources that we could not give, remember the DNC, we were raising our money to give to them. You ever had to raise money, you to chair the party, and we were like, we used to do this like, don't tell nobody in Brooklyn. Don't tell them in Brooklyn that we're sending you money. Because if we told Brooklyn, Brooklyn told them, you don't need money, we got that under control. So he cracked the blue wall because the safe was open. There was no firewall. That's why we didn't do well in Florida. I mean, I would go down to Florida and I would come back and say, little Haiti is complaining they, they don't have enough resources. And they look at me and say, don't worry, Madam Chair. I used to say, I hate that word, don't worry, Madam Chair. Please, call me Donna. No problem, Madam Chair. And they, it was so condescending that I used to scream and then I would come back and scream at Donnie <laughs> and scream at Tom. I'm like, they don't have money. They don't have posters, they don't have yard signs, they don't have people with lists. And I also think the other thing is, and maybe I'm wrong, but I might be proven right in a couple of weeks, I think the Russians had our data, they had our lists, they, they had our modeling. They knew who we were targeting. They knew that Danielle was a white college educated woman, right, from Vallejo. <laughs> they knew that, and they knew that if they could target her with trolls or bots. They knew exactly what they were doing. We're going to learn whether or, not the, whether or not they impacted our voter systems. We know that in several states, they did crack the code. They did mess with our e-poll books. And so ladies and gentlemen, we still have work to do to clean this up before 2018. So I'm not convinced that Hillary simply lost because she ignored those three states. I'm also, I also believe that Mr. Comey and um, Mr. Putin, I'm with Hillary all the way in her book. You know, I read her book, What Happened? Yeah, I, I do believe that also impacted us. But, but also, the failure of the campaign to understand that this was not 2008, 2012. People were not just going to show up because you wanted them to show up. You had to, I, I still believe in our democracy, it's, it's the best practice is to go to someone and say, Audrey, I need your help. Would you vote for me, please? And we didn't do that. We didn't do that in a lot of communities across this country. One of them might be harder. Not sure which one it is, though. So. You might know. <laughs> 
did you, I, I, I assume, don't let me put words in your mouth, that you would consider the Trump presidency to be a massive failure so far for democracy. Oh my did you think it was How going, much time yeah, well, oh, four minutes. So do you think, did you think it was going to be as bad it is, as it is? Yes. <laughs> I mean, Hillary said it best last year, he is unfit. I mean, I, you know, the other day when he was in North Korea, you know how you just sit there and say, oh, please, don't, don't, don't talk. Just look, just look good. Don't, don't open your mouth. I mean, you know, there's a tweeter Trump, the temperamental Trump, and there's a teleprompter Trump. And, you know, this is a, this is a president. By the way, I am an American. I want my president to succeed. That's number one. I've always felt like that. Uh, and I've, and I've, had, I've had some tough times with some of my, my presidents, you know. But this president cannot pivot. This president is unable to work across the aisle. This president browbeats and, and criticizes members of his own party. So he's incapable of bringing the American people together. He's divisive, he's xenophobic, he's racist. I mean, when he embraced, Charlottesville was it for me. I was praying for him. You know, you, you go to Catholic church, you get that long line, pray for the Pope. Always write the nuns who should be priests because they're doing all the work. <laughs> and, and so by Easter, I said, let me just write down Donald Trump's name. I said, Lord, I'm a burning hell. <laughs> and I felt good about that until Charlottesville. I'm like, what? No. Mm -mm. You're not praying for him anymore? I'm praying for, I'm praying for my country. Got to pray for him. <laughs> Look, I work for Al Gore. And on Air Force Two, I used to sit next to Jess in case. So I understand when someone has the codes, okay? And I, I used to sit there with my Bible, just in case. Okay, I'm ready too. <laughs> I was watching him. He didn't know that. I was watching him, okay? No, I, I, want my, I want my country to succeed, but I am deeply worried. And let me just say this. I was, I'm disappointed in, in General Kelly. Oh. Disappointed. <laughs> I am... I, I am praying now, my, my line now go to Robert Mueller. <laughs> yes. It's a long list now. Oh, that's why I go to church. It's longer every week. So unfortunately, I think we've run out of time except for one last question from the audience. Um, so your book now is called Hacks. Mm -hmm. What is the name of your next book? Uh, choose Hope, Choose Action. I, I, I ended, I ended uh, the book believing that our best days are still ahead. And on Tuesday, I don't, know, I don't know if some of you remember that, over the weekend, some of my former colleagues said that we were going to lose because Donna Brazil book came out before. And Lord have mercy. So y'all know I went to church. I went to St. Patrick. I went to the 5 o'clock mass, and right after George, I went back to church. It was a marathon. I said, look, y'all running that way. I got to run to church because I got to pray, Lord, if we lose. Lord, you know I never beg you. See, I never go to church. I never ask the Lord to give me an outcome. I said, God, give me output. And I said, Lord, please, whatever you're going to do with this rain, don't rain in Virginia and New Jersey. It rained. It rained. Even rain in Maine. And yet they voted. They voted to expand Medicaid for 89,000 of their fellow citizens. It rained, it rained in New, New Jersey, and yet they had a 
huge turnout and it rained all day in Virginia and turnout increased five percentage points over 2013. So what that told me, after all of these people, many of, many of whom have never walked the streets of America, I have walked the streets in 49 of our great states. I have helped people from all walks of life. And the weekend of Halloween, I flew home from Cambridge, where I'm living now, to Washington, D.C., and I had to ask myself, why am I here? Why am I still here? I'm here because there was a young Asian woman who called me, Kathy Tran, and she said, will you come? Will you come and walk the streets in Northern Virginia? I walked the streets with her, and the other day she became the first Asian American woman to ever be elected to the Virginia Senate. And so you choose hope. You choose hope, and you choose action. It doesn't matter what they say about you. People will always criticize you. I told my students last week at Harvard, I said, they criticized me back in 1980 when I said Dr. King's birthday should be a national holiday. They were mad at me. They were mad two years later when I was still on campus at LSU, and I said, we should free Nelson Mandela. And so they're mad at me today because I said, we should never have a campaign where one candidate chooses how to spend money for a political party before you're the nominee. So that's all I'm saying, and we should never have a campaign, ladies and gentlemen, where a, a foreign government comes in and tip the scales for another candidate because they don't like the other candidate. And ladies and gentlemen, as old as I am now, 57, I'm going to tell y'all something, because y'all know I'm not the kind you kick. I got my seat because Fannie Lou Hamer said I want a seat. I got my seat because Shirley Chisholm said she was unbought and she was unbossed. I got my seat because the Bella Abzugs of the world and others said that a woman should be in the house. And so don't let nobody tell you where you can't sit or you can't tell your story. This is a story of a child who was nine years old who walked the streets of her hometown down in the bayou, and you know it was hot. <laughs> she walked the street because she wanted a playground. Now you know. If I can walk at nine, I'm gonna walk at 57. I'll walk at 67. And I don't want anybody in this room to grow weary doing good because the Bible says in due season, you'll reap a harvest if you don't give up. We're gonna have a woman president one day. We're gonna have, we're gonna have a Hispanic, we're gonna have an openly gay president. Ladies and gentlemen, all of you can make that history happen. Don't you give up, choose hope, choose action. Write your story, buy my book, let me sign it. Bless you. Thank you. Thank you, Audrey. Thank you. Thank you. And for everybody, the book is Hacks, the inside story of the break-ins and breakdowns that put Donald Trump in the White House. It's been a pleasure sitting next Thank to you, you. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Thank you, California. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Thank you for joining us for another edition of Week to Week from the Commonwealth Club airing on the Michelle Miao Show on the Progressive Voices Network. I'm John Zipperer, and you can also hear me Tuesdays when I co-host Michelle Miao's program with her. Find out more about the club at commonwealthclub.org. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. 
So where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. You're listening to the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn. Please help us grow. Tell your friends to tune in to Progressive Voices. Find out more at ProgressiveVoices.com. Thanks so much for tuning in today. For more on us and other programs or podcasts you might have missed, you can head to MichelleMeow.com.